think of you and me Welcome to Voice from the Void, a podcast about Star Drifter and the Star Drifter universe. This is episode three, and I am your host, writer-creator David Collins Rivera. Today, we have a pretty cool article about a pretty cool subject, namely Star Jump. In Ejok's time, Star Jump is the only way to fly, if you don't want to spend thousands of years in transit between stars. What exactly is it? How did it come about, and what do you need to make it work? It's a big topic, and I have a lot to say, so we'll dive right in after the update. So, as many of you know, I went on a little vacation some weeks ago with my family. That was an epically unpleasant experience, the details of which I'll relate in issue 39 of High Desert, the Cavalcade Audio Productions newsletter. If you aren't subscribed to that, I encourage you to drop by www.cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up. That's the venue through which news stories and such get released anyway, so look for it in the newsletter. Anyway, one of the low points of this trip was contracting a very nasty head cold on the plane, probably the worst I've ever had. I thought it was the flu at first, despite having had my shot for the season, but it evolved too quickly for that. I won't go into the details because I think everyone is well acquainted with them. Fever, sinus and respiratory issues, aches and pains, secondary infections, and all the rest. And I'm still dealing with it. You can probably hear it in my voice, and my hearing is a little messed up. Suffice to say, my productivity has suffered. I haven't done much on Book 4, All He Surveys, since we got home. It was all I could do to sit upright most days. Indeed, I'm now feeling much better than I was and continue to improve, but much of this month and the last has been a washout. So, current status. I'm at about 35,000 words for Draft 1 of the new book. I hope to at least double that by this time next month. I'll keep you posted. Most space opera tales use the convention of some sort of hand-wavy, quasi-magical, faster-than-light technology to explain how ships can cross the vast emptiness of space in a short enough time for the plot to have some relevance, or even any kind of meaning at all. Star Drifter is no exception, making active use of this trope. It allows Ejok to have a career, and therefore adventures. Truly, it's a primary hallmark of this subgenre, without which I couldn't even tell these tales. Faster-than-light technology in space opera can fall into a number of styles. I choose to go with something pretty standard, with just a few slight changes for the sake of variety, and to use as fodder for various plot elements. You will doubtlessly be reminded of the tech depicted in other stories by other people as I go along, so let me be crystal clear about this. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm not attempting to reinvent the wheel with Stardrum. I'm not claiming any kind of creative originality associated with it or anything else I do. I've taken a standard genre idea and given it a paint job. Nothing more. So... With that in mind, let's roll. 
star jump, which is entirely made up, depends upon another fictional technology of this series, namely artificial gravity or AG. Now, AG deserves an episode all its own, and if I were attempting to be comprehensive with this series, I probably would have tackled that first. I'm not, though, so you get what you get when you get it. Artificial gravity is used in the star jump process to create a tiny, controlled singularity. Just a little guy, a few microns across. Nothing especially dangerous, aside from radiation, which the engine is shielded for, and certainly nothing world-killing. The perimeter of this short-lived black hole is where space-time becomes pliant. Immediately after it is created, the star jump engine manipulates the singularity's perimeter, capturing and inflating it outward into a bubble shape around the ship, a bubble that effectively cuts it off from the rest of the universe. This action is nearly instantaneous once star jump is initiated, causing the black hole to vaporize via Hawking radiation. Indeed, in a nominal jump sequence, the singularity itself only exists for microseconds, while the space-time effects of it are held in suspension by the engine. An analogy might be the ripples in a pond that continued to exist long after the stone that formed them has disappeared. As a side note, the most common cause of unsuccessful jumps is a misalignment of the star jump engine. It is in the black hole creation and evaporation phases where the majority of these misalignments occur. Generally, this makes the jump sequence fail automatically. The ship simply doesn't move. On rare occasions, the misalignment is more subtle, too subtle for warning systems to pick up on, and the sequence fires off imperfectly, causing a misjump, and I'll have more to say about that in a bit. This bubble, more properly called the jump field, is, for all intents and purposes, a tiny contained environment separate from normal reality. It is alternately referred to as a pocket universe, a bubble universe, or jump space. This bubble is similar to our own dimension in many ways, carrying over most of the physical laws of our universe when it's formed. Space and time, however, are different, and can be controlled to an extent via the star jump engine system. A jump bubble cannot be initiated by the ship while it is inside an area of relatively high gravity, commonly referred to as a gravity well. This applies to stellar objects of many kinds, planetary ones, or even moons of size. The jump field interacts with the gravity well, causing the field to distort and collapse immediately. When this happens, the jump simply fails and the ship goes nowhere. It is a requirement, therefore, to leave the area of affecting gravity before making the transition to jump space. Out on the fringes of a well, where the jump field is distorted but not destroyed, it's sometimes possible to make a star jump anyway. Such field distortion is very likely to cause a misjump, though, with all the negative effects that go along with that. Speaking of which, nearly any deviation from nominal star jump functionality may be classified as a misjump. The danger from and severity of these sorts of accidents range from minor to catastrophic. A minor misjump might result in slight time or space differentials beyond what was calculated. For example, instead of arriving at its destination instantaneously, the ship might arrive a few minutes or hours later. 
A catastrophic misjump could result in the complete loss of the ship. That is to say, it enters jump space and is never seen again. What happens to such ships is not known at this time, but some believe that they are reduced to quantum particles and distributed throughout all of time and space. Others think they just cease to exist on any level. Regardless of the severity involved, misjumps of all kinds are taken very seriously by the International Route Management Authority, a supranational governing body supported by the big four nations of space, which, among many other duties, handle such matters in the civilian arena. The major military bodies have their own investigating departments for such accidents, but they tend to follow RMA guidelines in most regards. The power and efficiency of the engine determine the time and distance distortion of jump space compared to the real universe. The better the engine, the farther a ship can travel in a single jump, and the shorter amount of subjective time it takes to do so. More about subjective time inside the jump bubble in just a moment. There are innumerable variations on this design theme, making for ships that can travel very quickly, but only over a relatively short distance. Such vessels are often used as couriers and fast personnel transports, while there are others that can go quite far on a single star jump, but take their sweet time getting there. The average freight hauler depicted in Star Drifter generally falls somewhere in the middle, but again, it's hard to generalize when there are so many exceptions. Military vessels have a similar degree of design variance, with specific ships designed for specific jobs. While in jump space, a ship does not use reaction mass to move to its destination. The star jump engine system is manipulating space-time, moving the entire jump field relative to the real universe. This requires extensive pre-calculation by a dedicated star jump navigation computer, as well as trillions of in-flight adjustments as the trip goes along. Since these calculations are needed for the jump system to function at all, star jump navigation is technically an engineering subsystem. In practice, though, it's rarely channeled through or overseen by engineering personnel. Star nav is almost always treated as part of general navigation, making it a typical presence on a ship's bridge. Star nav and star jump engineering personnel work closely nonetheless, since there is significant technical overlap between the two. On military vessels and for certain civilian certifications, star jump engineering specialists and star jump navigators undergo extensive cross training. Now then, there is some other dimensional bleed over when the perimeter effects of the black hole are created and destroyed, that is to say, whenever a ship enters or exits jump space. This bleed-over condition is caused by exotic and protoformed waves and particles held in suspension on the bubble rim, independent of the laws of physics of the normal universe. When these energies and particulates touch our universe, they immediately condense into a very specific form of massless energized particles known as gravitons. In terms of modern quantum gravitational theory, the bubble perimeter represents, among other things, a massless spin-two field, so particles formed in it must be, by definition, gravitons. Again, this is all techno-babbling nonsense, but it offers up some structure and detail to draw from when putting together a story. Because of the exotic matter energy of their origins and other dimensional starting point, these gravitons represent a halfway state between the artificial and real universes, possessing qualities of both. 
They exist in a solid, though massless, particulate form at the quantum level, just as they normally would according to gravitational theory, or even string theory. But unlike theorized gravitons, which can only populate relativistically in this universe, the extra-dimensional space-time quality of the pocket dimension spits them out at superluminal speeds. They only move this quickly for microseconds before the extra-dimensional effects wear off and they drop back down to the speed of light. Gravitons in this state are the only matter known to travel faster than light in the normal universe, and they have been the subject of continual research since their discovery. Because of their superluminal characteristics, these gravitons cannot interact easily with normal matter, making them reminiscent of but distinct from neutrinos. They do, however, disturb certain frequencies of the electromagnetic spectrum as they move, and can thus be detected and measured with specialized sensor equipment, which nearly all modern space vessels carry as a matter of course. Advanced star jump engines can actually be calibrated to deliver a specific graviton load while entering or exiting jump space. While not affecting the jump itself, this creates a signature which can be consistently reproduced, recorded, and referenced from a database. Variations on these signatures can also be used to send faster-than-light messages of a sort by adding recognizable modifiers that correspond to a list of agreed-upon codes. These messages are generally localized to the star system or area of space the ship is transitioning to or from due to the short lifespan of the superlight quality of the gravitons. Star jump engines are powered by electricity, which can be obtained by any appropriate source, whether it's reactor systems, chemical fuel motors, or even ultrafast capacitors fed by a battery bank. In practice, most starships and many non-jump capable spaceboats derive power from onboard fusion reactors. These drive power plants, which in turn feed the star jump engine and other systems aboard with electrical power. Large ships often have multiple reactors, at least one of which is dedicated solely to star jump. Prototype fusion reactors that feed the star jump engine directly through particle and energy conversion do exist, but are considered highly experimental. In Book 3, Risk Analysis, one of the free jump ships is thought to be using an exotic power source of some sort. It was likely one of these. Regarding the timeline, in my mind, star jump is first developed late in the 22nd century. As always, I reserve the right to play with years and dates and such, but what I do know right now is that the first star jump was actually a near-catastrophic misjump. This was with a fully automated vessel named XA551. On the very first try, it vanished without trace from its parking orbit out past Neptune. Researchers already understood that gravity interfered with star jump initialization, but had no experience with nor practical method by which to gauge the effect. Thought lost, XA551 reappeared further out in the Kuiper belt nearly five months later, a dozen degrees off the plane of the ecliptic. Once recovered, researchers were stumped to learn that the drone's onboard clocks showed that the months-long trip had taken the automated craft only a few seconds' time from its point of view. 
Hitherto, the concept of a time differential between the real and artificial universes had been speculative. After this, it became a focus of intense research. With a modern, properly working star jump engine, exactly zero time passes between a ship's entry into jump space and its exit, regardless of the distance involved. Inside jump space, however, time does pass. How much is entirely dependent upon the power and efficiency of the star jump engine, as well as the distance traveled. This differential is called subjective time, and it affects everything within the jump field. Generally speaking, for every light year traversed in the real universe, X number of subjective hours pass inside the jump bubble. Consequently, a popular myth is that professional spacers age quickly compared to people in other professions. While a few rare individuals may indeed spend an inordinate amount of waking time, that is time not spent frozen down in cold passage, within jump space, most professional spacers, including career military types, spend at most a few weeks to maybe a month awake in subjective time per standard year. For such people, that might add up to only two or three years spent in subjective time over the course of an entire career. With the rise of age reassignment as a general medical practice, even this amount becomes negligible. Because interstellar messages only travel as fast as the ships that carry them, an elaborate system of data storage and retrieval has been put into place. In most settled star systems, an outbound ship is constantly collecting and storing information from either an official data dissemination office or a licensed data broker. This information is recorded to a series of high-volume information storage devices aboard, which are entirely distinct from the memory, storage, and computing capacity of the ship itself. In most places in the galaxy, it is required by law that Starjump-enabled commercial vessels have such devices installed, since this is the standard method by which interstellar communication and commerce is dispersed. That which we might equate to a galaxy-wide Internet of the future, if you will, exists only because of this data transfer infrastructure. Protocol generally runs along the lines of a ship having an account with the appropriate office or data firm. Data from the ship's onboard devices is uploaded to the office, where it gets unpacked, checked for archive corruption and malware, has all redundancies flagged and dealt with, and then gets channeled out into the local data nets of the star system. Up on the ship, New data, deemed by the office to be exportable, is then downloaded by the ship overriding the old stuff. This downloading process continues all the way up to the point of star jump. On the other end of the voyage, in whatever star system the ship finds itself, the process begins all over again. There are many variations on this procedure, including the direct sharing of data loads between ships if both have accounts with the same firm, but the basic concept is the same throughout most of space. This process is almost completely automated, requiring little or no oversight by ship's personnel or systems. Nonetheless, a ship and its crew are responsible for maintaining the physical safety and integrity of the dedicated storage devices aboard, along with all related data signaling and transfer equipment. 
In most places, ship owners are compensated, to an extent, for carrying and maintaining this equipment. Some governments provide the devices directly, along with a tax credit for the ship, based upon the volume of data moved. In other places, commercial data brokers offer subscription-style services and memberships and provide or lease all the hardware. In exchange, the ship gets X amount of money for X amount of data moved. It rarely adds up to much at any rate. There are a few large commercial vessels out there, often referred to as data tankers, modified with many of these storage devices. Sucking up enough data for such a ship to reach capacity can take a while. Much of it is older information by the time the vessel is ready for star jump. These ships mostly make runs out to remote settlements that see little regular traffic. As these places are typically starved for new data, even information deemed to be old or obsolete elsewhere in the galaxy has real value. Space battles in the future can happen quickly and be quite decisive when they do. Leaving aside commercial gunnery for now, as it's well worth an episode all its own, military assets traveling to a scene of conflict via star jump leave their ports one moment and arrive at the battle the next, at least in the real universe. That is a speed of deployment never dreamed of in past eras. The nature of subjective time means other effects occur as well, some good, some bad. Crew members, troops, and equipment all have time for optimal combat readiness. The advantage of this is difficult to overstate. However, waking personnel are also a burden, costing the ship life support, supplies, services, and energy, as well as allowing combat forces time to fret over the coming battle, which might damage morale. For these reasons and others, it is common for most military vessels, and for that matter most commercial ones, to place non-essential personnel into suspended animation, also known as cold passage. And yes, cold passage will get an episode at some point. Doing this as a general practice massively eases the life support and food supply burden aboard and helps ensure the so-called action life of a mission. Life support and food rations are measured aboard ship in units called Person Days, or PD. It's a measurement of how many 24-hour days of food, running water, clean air, and energy for heating and cooling a ship has available for the use of an average person. To give you a sense of the economy of scale regarding the savings involved, Imagine a personnel carrier on a two-week star jump subjective time to another system. This ship is moderately sized and has cold passage facilities for 2,000 troops. If these people were all awake for the run of the trip, 2,000 times 14 days of travel equates to a PD of 28,000 or roughly 76 years. No moderately sized troop carrier has enough food, air, and power for even a fraction of that time. Seven and a half decades of person days are saved over the course of two weeks by utilizing cold passage in this manner. It is the only way that large-scale interstellar travel is possible in either the military or commercial sectors. Without it, Subjective time becomes a harsh reality, vastly reducing the number of people that can travel at any one time.
Vessels in jump space are undetectable to the normal universe, and vice versa. Registration of a flight plan and itinerary are required by nearly every port in space, but where exactly the ship is or where it's going are facts only known for sure by the crew. If a ship without a registered port of call is observed at the moment of star jump, a range of possible headings for it can sometimes be calculated. This sort of thing relies on knowledge of the surrounding destination ports where fuel and life support recharges can be obtained, the jump capability of the ship, the desperation of the crew, and certain telltales within the graviton discharge at the moment of transition. This kind of calculation is generally only practiced by police and military forces in active pursuit who also have enough starships available to cover the range of possible destinations. A hidden port or rendezvous in an unusual location can make all such attempts fruitless, no matter how accurate, so this sort of tracking, if it can be called that, is considered hit or miss even under perfect conditions. The number and even number of types of Starjump-capable vessels are far too numerous to count. But in the Stardrifter novels and stories, two types of starships are mentioned over and over, so we'll look at them briefly right now. 1. Commercial freighters. These are civilian vessels of various kinds, dedicated to moving people and merchandise across the stars for profit. They represent the overwhelming majority of ships in space. Indeed, all other interstellar voyages combined, including military and exploration, amount to less than 10% of what commercial traffic does, volume-wise. Trade goods, passenger flights, and data transfers are the blood and soul of human habitation in the galaxy. An interruption of these things is usually seen as an emergency. Serious long-term piracy that impacts local economies, trade embargoes or other impediments to the free flow of goods and services nearly always precipitate economic and or humanitarian crises. As the common phrase goes, stuff's gotta move. We'll cover this in greater detail in an upcoming episode on trade, commerce, and the economic system of the future. 2. Military Military starships come in all shapes and sizes and do all sorts of jobs. In fact, cargo, personnel transports, sometimes seen as one and the same, and communications vessels outnumber actual warships in standing militaries by an order of magnitude. It takes significant resources and distribution channels to wage war in outer space, and all combat vessels of size travel with an entourage of support ships dedicated to refueling duties, repairs, emergency services, communications, supply deliveries, and more. That being said, all four territories, and many smaller confederations, maintain a large number of actual ships of war, ranging from the spectacular Bel Air-class Grand Carriers of Alliance Fleet to the small but heavily armed gunships of church space. Nearly every size, function, and mission-specific design class of military starship can be found somewhere in space. Finally, a special note regarding free jump. As described in Book 3, Risk Analysis, 
Free jump is the next generation of star jump technology, allowing a ship to enter or exit jump space regardless of whether or not it's in a gravity well. In that book, the tech is still highly experimental, but by the time of the events depicted in the short story Hunter's Moon, which takes place 20 to 25 years after risk analysis, free jump has become stable enough to be deployed on military vessels in the field. Even by then, though, most ships are not so equipped, implying that there are limitations to the tech, extreme production costs attached to it, or both. So that's it for this one. I didn't get any feedback in the last episode, so we'll skip that part, except to remind you that I welcome your comments and questions about today's topic or any other. Indeed, if I galloped through something about which you'd like more detail, drop a line and let me know. Also, if there's a favorite topic you'd care to hear about, or something in particular that sparks your curiosity, I will do my utmost to honor all requests. Next week, we'll be taking a look at space stations. That's right. What different kinds are there? How many exist? Do a lot of people live on them? If so, why? The answer to these questions and many more are coming up next time on Voice from the Void. See you then. You have been listening to Voice from the Void, a podcast about Star Drifter and the Star Drifter universe, written and hosted by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. Check out my site at www.cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash davidcollinsrivera, all one word. The theme music is a piece called Wicked Ways by Kilobyte. That's spelled K-I-L-L-A-B-Y-T-E, featuring Danica Nadeau. It is available through No Copyright Sounds at ncs.io slash wickedwaysid. This podcast contains discussion about fictional works and characters and is not meant to portray any person living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Voice from the Void is copyright 2018 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>